When Time Magazine released the finalists for their 2020 Person of the Year, very few of the finalists were surprising. Joe Biden and Donald Trump were not surprising at all. The presidential campaign dominated most of the year. Anthony Fauci and frontline health workers as finalists should have shocked no one either. 2020 will likely be remembered in history books as the year a pandemic shut down the entire world. The fourth finalist, however, I must admit, was a bit more unexpected. For Time had included racial justice warriors as potential persons of the year as well. Now, surely nobody could begin to question the much-needed impact that groups fighting for and protesting for and advocating for racial justice had in the year 2020. And perhaps the groundswell of support for that fight for racial equality reached a pinnacle this year, especially this past summer. But in a year so dominated by so much news and so many tragedies and controversies, it's actually almost hard to remember that those protests and demonstrations for much-needed change all happened in this calendar year. Yes, that all happened in 2020 as well. So it sort of begs the question, has the long-fought struggle for racial equality once again been forgotten? And have the voices calling desperately for it been drowned out once again? I'm Clay Aiken. It's Wednesday, December 16th, and this week, Politicon asks the important question to one of the preeminent scholars and writers in the country on the topic of race in America. New York Times bestselling author Michael Eric Dyson joins us this week. His book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America, takes a current and timely look at how the events of 2020 have shaped the fight for racial justice in America in ways that this country has desperately needed, and in some ways that it hasn't. I'll ask him how much progress he feels has been made in the year 2020, and how much is left to do. And of course, how the heck are we going to get along? Hey, Michael. Hey, man. How you doing? I am okay. I sound like a man this week for the first time in in 42 years. I've got <laughs> laryngitis. So <laughs> I, I, I finally hit finally hit puberty this week. It's exciting. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> so hopefully I don't I don't nothing else, but I was now where are you where are you right now? I'm in uh, DC. Are you in DC? Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're is it snowing there yet? Yeah, it snowed and then it got washed away with the rain, man. So there's no snow really here. Oh, so the big stuff that it was supposed to hit you has maybe not happened. Not yet, and maybe it's not oh, coming, good. you know. Oh, good. Well, we got just that. We only got the wet. I'm in Raleigh, and so we only got the wet, nasty stuff from it. But we got the cold temperatures for the first time. And now, and every year, every year without fail, the first week that it drops below freezing, my voice goes out. <laughs> completely goes out. So I sound like a man once a year. <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day. Once a year, I get, I get to sound like a male. And then thankfully, well, I'm not singing, obviously, right now. So really? <laughs> that's a good thing. But in normal years, it's not yeah. uh, not a good thing to happen around the holidays. What have you been doing? What have you been up to during the quarantine? Have you been... Man, just writing books and, you know, trying to keep steady and sane and... uh you know, doing speaking engagements and stuff like that, you know, just all the... So you've uh, been able to stay busy. Yeah, yeah, very busy. Look... Are you teaching still? No, I don't... Uh, I didn't have to teach this year because I'm off, thank God. So that gives me an opportunity to really uh, stretch out and do my other stuff, you know? Well, I mean, it's nice to keep busy. I was talking to a friend today about how she's 
uh, she says she started going to see a therapist for this, her and her her husband. Or, and I said, I think everybody is feeling that at this point. Yeah. Everyone. I've started going to one more often myself, and it's just yeah. like being cooped up. And I'm an introvert, so right. I am I am perfectly fine to stay inside. But this year has been, I mean, what what's what's tw- put 2020 into a into a sentence or two for me? What would it be? <sighs> you know forced to be introspective no mm. choice but to be reflective i mean that's that's what oh, it damn is. that was way better than i thought it would be i put you on the spot and you came ready that's what a writer does right there um, <laughs> do you think that we are we have been reflective this year well yeah i think we've been forced to try to come to grips with all the stuff we didn't want to confront, you know, the stuff we let fly by, the stuff we thought, well, I can just uh, marginalize that or compartmentalize that. You know, when you're forced inside, uh, you got to take it a different way. And like you, you know, people are surprised to hear this. I'm like an ambivert. I can be an introvert and an extrovert, Mm -hmm. but I can go off that road. And I know you know this as a performer, you know, I can go off that road, man, because I'm on the road so tough and then get home and stay inside for two or three weeks. It didn't even bother. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't miss anything. And so in one sense, the the pandemic has permitted me to, you know, I wrote a book. I've given a bunch of lectures, uh, getting ready. I made a move. You Well, I haven't physically moved yet, but I'm moving from Georgetown to Vanderbilt. So I'm going to be oh. in Tennessee. Hanging out nice. in Nashville, Cashville, Nash Vegas, mm-hmm. you know, and um, but it does invite you to kind of take a step back. And I think, you know, either with the global pandemic or the kind of racial pandemic that was revealed after George Floyd, in either case, uh, it beckoned us to try to wrestle with the consequences of how we've been living and I think it forced a lot of us to uh, to rethink our priorities and commitments. DC uh, DC to Nashville is a big is a pretty big change. Yeah. Why is it is that you're going for the school? Is there a is there a, a specific reason that you wanted to um, move to? I mean, it is the South. It may be it may be L.A. with an accent, but it is also uh-huh. still right in the heart of of the South. Is there a yeah? Uh, was there a draw for you? In that way? Well, yeah, you know, well, uh, many of them. First of all, my <clears throat> former student is the head of the department of which I'll be a part. Um, so that's great. You know, we get a chance to reconnect and um, do work. Um, also, I get a chance to go teach at a seminary as well, a divinity school. And oh. that's a real attraction for me because I've enjoyed myself immensely here at Georgetown, but I'm not Catholic. And, you know, it's been tough to kind of break that barrier to do religious stuff here formally in terms of teaching, because I understand they got their own way thinking and approach. So for me, it's a return to the divinity school and to being able to, you know, teach stuff in that as well as the School of Art and Science, Arts and Science. So that's a draw. And then, you know, Going back, uh, I lived in Tennessee from from seventy nine to eighty five. I went to undergraduate there at uh, Carson Newman College. Started at Knoxville College. So 
even though it was in East Tennessee in Knoxville, this is in Nashville, but it, it gives me a sense to return. And I know what you mean. It's still the South. It's still a lot of resistance to change and and the like, but there's also some openness and some, you know, hospitality in the best sense of that word that will afford us the opportunity to um, to do some stuff we haven't been able to do here in D.C., engage people in a more intimate space, uh, be back in a place where, you know, the rituals of the South uh, may either reveal or mask some deeper issues and a chance to grapple with those both intellectually and then spiritually is is a good thing. I mean, listen, not, you won't hear me say anything bad about the South. That's that's been home for me my whole life. Right. But I, but but Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, the area I live in, in the Triangle, is not dissimilar from Nashville in right. that we are a pretty progressive pocket inside a very deep red rural and an exurban area around us. And Nashville sort of has that same thing too. I mean, inside mm-hmm. Nashville, it may not be as progressive as Durham and Chapel right. Hill are, but, but Nashville's pretty progressive, mm-hmm. but you don't have to go far out of, of Davidson County. I mean, stay in it in Davidson yeah. County and still get some very scary rural and conservative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, to some people, certainly yeah. scary. Why? <clears throat> This is what you do. So you tell me, help me. Why is there such a, you know, su- why are we in such pockets like that? Why is the progressivism in Nashville or in Raleigh and Durham, we share a media market with, you know, towns right outside of our area. You know, we should, Nashville shares a media market with, with places like Goodlettsville and, but the, the, opinions are so different. I mean, yeah. you don't have to go far to see people, meet people who oppose you completely in, in politically. How has that happened? How has there no, why is there no gray area in between anymore? Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, I lived for three years in Durham because I taught at Chapel Hill and that was from mm-hmm. 2000, I mean, from 94 to 97. So I completely get your point of Chapel Hill and Raleigh and Durham being kind of enclaves of progressivism amidst a vast range of conservative identities and ideologies. And as you said, in Nashville, probably the same thing. I think one of the reasons, you know, for those pockets is that, um, you know, geographically, uh, when certain regions, certain urban areas, certain towns, certain villages, certain spaces and places are populated by universities. So, you know, all those universities per square inch in Chapel Hill and, and, and uh, Durham is just pretty remarkable, right? One of the smartest areas in the country. Except um, for my house, but no, yes. I was going to say, and, and, and you elevated it, brother. You elevated. It. <laughs> I don't know about that, uh, but I mean, just, it's. But you're also talking about Atlanta, Austin, Texas. Right. I mean, there are plenty of these pockets throughout right. the South. It's not That's just right. Tennessee and no and, and North Carolina. Well, exactly right. But you have the concentration of, by definition, if you're going to deal with a university, it doesn't mean you have to be progressive or liberal versus conservative. But people who think for a living, who do university stuff for a living, who tend to grapple with ideas or create products or generate science, 
you know, have to at least ostensibly, allegedly be open-minded, be willing to experiment with ideas, trade information, conversation about, you know, identities and practices and the like. So you would think that those towns that are filled with universities would tend to be zones and regions of appreciation for open-minded engagement, whereas right outside of them, you know, where people are not necessarily penetrated by those kinds of, you know, places, spaces, and consideration where the colleges are not there, the university is not there, um, you know, there's a different feel. And I'm not trying to be an elitist by saying, oh, the universities are enlightened and those outside are not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the kind of people it tends to draw, the kind of perspectives it tends to generate, and the kind of areas that it tends to liberalize um, as a result of proximity to some of these uh, some of these schools. And so it's but there's interesting. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's a sharp line. I mean, you just you go away from these areas, mm-hmm. you go away from Atlanta just a bit. Yeah. And you find it's there's it's it's it they're bubbles. I mean, is it the responsibility of those folks who live in a place like Chapel Hill or Austin, Texas to do more outreach to understand who's around them? I mean, who's at fault here for not trying to see the other side if if those folks in the university towns like Austin and and Charlottesville Virginia or or wherever are truly open-minded and enlightened don't they need to kind of understand what's happening and understand the points of view of people within an hour of where they live there's or? no question about that i think absolutely right i mean i i, I guess people were kind of surprised when matthew mcconaughey made your point a couple of weeks ago oh did he yeah, on, on, um, I think <laughs> we have Russell, the same train. We have the same trainer too. Yeah, I have his abs. You're, trust you're me. both pretty. <laughs> you're both pretty, man. So you know, yeah, you, right. what are you gonna do, right? So <laughs> you know, you, um, and he was saying basically that um, that in Hollywood, you know, looking down, you know, the elites looking down on those who are not, you know, as Hicks and so on. And I think that's a quite a legitimate point. So I would never deny that. I think it is incumbent upon those you know, to whom much is given, much is required. So those who may not understand, those who may not be inclined to agree, those who are inclined not to embrace, uh, those of us who think a certain way and act a certain way, behave a certain way. um, Yeah, I think that it is incumbent upon us to try to reach out to the other side, figure it out, think about what's going on. The flip side of that, though, and what I thought about, especially with McConaughey, is, you know, for all these Trump folk and those folk who are attracted to that, and I'm not suggesting that anybody who's therefore outside of the liberal zones and spheres of university life are automatically attracted to Trump. I'm saying historically, in the last four years, that has often been the case. And, you know, James Baldwin had a line, I'll uh, flub it here, but it was something to the effect, look, we can always be open-minded and deal with ideas that are beyond the pale, but where that ends is where my very existence is seen by you as a trouble, as a problem that you want to shut me down, wipe me out. There's no kind of exchange of value, of insight at that level where, you know, you think my very existence, whether because of color or sexuality or gender, is itself the problem that it carries with it an, in, uh, an unalterable 
um, kind of, you know, persona, personality, identity that we can't do away with. And at that level, it gets tough because you are, as a human being, certainly open to and empathetic with people who are quite different, who believe differently. But if the very existence you have is called into question by those who would want to, you know, debate or challenge your identities or ideas, those who think that just because you exist the way you do, that that's a fundamental problem, that's a more difficult thing to get at. And yeah, I mean, um, it's the yeah. it's that the people say your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins, right? Uh, there I mean, it is. It's, more it's, eloquently, it's sort of the right? same, it sort is. of the same issue, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, right. And and I totally agree with that, but it's a little bit less concrete, I think, to some folks when it comes to some of the some of the. I guess I think about some of my conservative family, and I've talked on this podcast several times about how I'm one of two people in my family who voted for Joe Biden um, <laughs> and everybody else voted for Trump. Right. I don't, I don't think that my uncle who is a passionate Trump supporter wants to erase me as a gay man. I know he's right. not thrilled with the fact that his nephew's gay, but he doesn't necessarily care that I can get married now. He's fine with it. He wants to see me happy, but he still supports Trump. And I have had to, in my mind, realize, okay, his priorities, some of them, and I'm, I'm speaking about my uncle in a very general sense, right. in, the, in the sense that he's like a lot of these other people who I'm talking about. But, you know, his priorities or their priorities may be more about gun rights and wanting to have mm -hmm. their gun access. I don't necessarily love that either. But, you know, if that's the number one priority, I have a hard time getting mad at him because he's not making gay rights his priority. Right, right, right. Um, is... Do, do we think that the a lot of people say, and I did a thing for the view of, of years a few years ago um, mm. and with some middle schooler and high schoolers actually, mm. and some of the students said, listen, the fact that you some of the so the Clinton Hillary Clinton supporting students said to the Trump supporting students, the fact that you can support Donald Trump means that you don't care that he's a racist. You don't care that the things that he says are racist, that he has racist policies, et cetera. Mm -hmm. If you support him, you are condoning racism. Mm -hmm. Is that is that a fair statement, do you think? Yeah, I, I understand their point um, because they're not calling the person who supports Donald Trump a racist, right? That's a, that's a critical distinction because— Well, the, in this situation, they were. They well, were, they were supporting. Well, 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 they were conflating the two, I think, okay. and it does get like that's where it gets fuzzy, right? Yeah. You know, are you saying that that Trump supporter is a racist, or are you saying that they are okay with racism because they support Donald Trump, and therefore, I mean, like, where's the line? If you think that someone's, yeah. a, if you're mad at somebody because they're quote okay with racism, then isn't that the same as saying that they're racist? Well, it's the same as saying that the racism of a person who would want to wipe me out doesn't cause you to side with me in opposition to them, right? In other words, not, not individually. I'm not talking about something, you know, we're, we're talking about as a principle and practice. If somebody believes in, say, let, let's take it in another direction. If somebody believed that, you know, they could support, let, let's be real extreme, they could support a fascist or a Nazi, who believed yep. in the extermination of Jewish brothers and sisters. And you say, look, I'm not anti-Semitic, 
but this guy I support. And then you go, well, dang, if you support that guy, you may say to me, you're not anti-Semitic, but he believes in the eradication of all Jews. It would be difficult right. for me to make that distinction. And, and, and in this case, if Donald Trump's main platform, right, not something ancillary, but such a major part and portion of his belief, identity, ideas rested on, and, you know, the belief in white supremacy, uh, white nationalism, you know, he couldn't make a distinction between Antifa and the neo-Nazis. You know, I think if somebody were to say, you know, you know all of this, but you say, oh, but he helps the bottom line. He helps my economy. He gives me a better, you know, percentage in terms of my investment. Oh, okay. So for you, the bottom line for you is that a return on your investment, the economy being strong to you, far outweighs any consideration that he's practicing politics that undercut my ability to exist, much less exist well in that same economy. And the quote from James Baldwin was, you know, when I, he was saying something like, you, could, you know, you and I can disagree. We can still love each other unless your disagreement, I think he said, is rooted in my oppression and the denial of my humanity and right to exist. So at that level, yeah, um, I think it is a critical distinction to say that you don't have to necessarily believe that the person who is siding with Donald Trump is a racist. They could be a narcissist. They could be self-involved. They could be an ordinary person just seeking to exist who doesn't want to be bothered with a choice between my bottom line and the economic situation of this society, my state, my city. Uh, being an advantage to me, and that's a result of the president, versus saying, all right, but I have, at the same time, all that comes at a price. It's not the price of my body. It's not the price of my situation, uh, my, my society. It's not the price of my people. It's not the price of people who look like me. So it is difficult. I think it is fuzzy. It is, um, it is nebulous at a certain point. It gets kind of one thing bleeds into the other. But I don't think it's the same as saying, OK, you're a racist because you follow this dude. But it's also not saying that uh, one is completely clear of any culpability. What is the what did the uh, rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said? Not all are guilty, but all are responsible. So we got to figure right. out ways in which we say, you know what, by upholding this particular viewpoint in the world, whether I intend to or not. It may be having a negative effect on somebody else. And at some point, I have to get uncomfortable enough to recognize that and ask myself, what am I going to do about it? Do you think, I mean, listen, it's no, no mystery to anyone who's listened to half of one of these podcasts that I am not a fan of Donald Trump in uh -huh, any way. Uh -huh, <laughs> so uh -huh. so I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate in some right, ways right. here. But, but a, a serious question, though, uh -huh. is do you think that he is actively um, oppressive, or do you think that he is indifferent to the needs and struggles of people who are not named Donald Trump? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, let me answer it a couple of ways. First of all, when he and his father owned property and they kept Black people from joining the Neighborhood Association or renting from them, that's active. Uh, when he was in, you know, um, Atlantic City, and he didn't want black people showing up front as people came into the casino. That's active. Mm -hmm. uh, when he takes out a full page ad 
against the the you know exonerated five. They were then called the you know Central Park Five, and even right. after they are found to be you know innocent, they are not guilty of the crime with which they are charged. He still wanted to hurt and harm them. That's active. Well, is that just because he doesn't know how to lose anything and he refuses to admit that he's wrong on anything? I mean, look, well, at, what look at what we're going through right now. Well, right. This is a man who's not able to say, oh, I was wrong. Oh, I lost. Sorry. Right. No, it's I mean, both. It's both. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's both and. And, you, you know, you, you got one and the other. You got a guy who can't lose as a sore loser. And you got a guy um, who also happens to, I think, have a definite set of ideas about black people and other minoritized people, and it makes a huge difference. But look at it this way, too. If you say, look, if your cell phone is on silent or just vibrate versus it ringing and somebody else's phone is ringing, well, you say, well, the person whose phone rings knows, you know, they know they have a call. But the person on silent, you know, you don't know. But here's the point. The call still gets through. They can still leave a message for you just because it's not ringing, just because it is on silent or vibrate and it doesn't make a bunch of noise and it doesn't draw attention to itself doesn't mean that the message doesn't get through. So in that sense, whether it's on vibrate or whether it's on, you know, or silent or whether it's loud, uh, the the message is still getting through. The racist message Mm -hmm. is still communicated. I don't think, you know, I think, look, Donald Trump enjoyed tremendous support by the hip-hop community before he became a political figure, right? A lot of Donald Trump were, you know, a lot of rappers used Donald Trump in their songs because they were, you know, avaricious capitalists. They believed in the bottom line being, you know, raised uh, and strengthened. They believed in getting money. They believed in, you know, being a leader, having swagger, that kind of thing. So there are a lot of black, you know, stars, rap artists who were supportive of Donald Trump and his sense of swag and his sense of charm and his sense of bravura and bravado. Um, That switches up a bit when it comes time to talking about him as a political figure, because as a political figure, he's made some different choices and had different uh, outcomes to his belief. But you would hear, you would also still hear that there, I mean, people within his administration and anyone who just looks at the the hard facts, uh-huh. why did he get a higher percentage of the black uh-huh. and brown vote than Mitt Romney or George uh, W. Bush or any Republican right. in my lifetime? Like wh- wh- that that confuses me too. I mean, Joe Joe Biden got in trouble for saying something to Charlemagne the God uh-huh. when he said, "If you ha- can't decide who to vote for, you ain't black." Uh-huh. But I think. A lot of people thought, well, but I understand his point. I mean, but yeah. then the vote tally comes out, and there were a lot more black and brown voters who voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, there than was, before. Why, can you explain yeah. that? Yeah, there, <laughs> can was, you? there was definitely an uptick. I think about five percentage points from thirteen percent to eighteen percent for black men, and four percentage points I think for black women. I think for black men. You know, a couple few things. I think what I just described to you, that sense of bravado, that sense of swag, a lot of them may be denied its public expression. A lot of those black men, unless they're football players and they're wide receivers uh, or they're on the athletic field 
or in some other arena where it is legitimate for them to be able to express the full range of their identities, what they feel, the passions that motivate their heart. And so they look at a guy like Donald Trump and he's telling the truth. They think, look, he ain't covering it up. He ain't trying to be sweet with it. He ain't trying to candy coat it. He's just telling the truth about what he believes. There's something attractive to that, to certain Isn't kind that of men. Isn't that what made him appeal to so many white voters too? No doubt about I mean, it. But the, I mean, there, there was that authenticity, I think, mm-hmm. of, of, amongst that people saw in him. He's clearly not poll testing. If right. he'll say something like, I'll grab her by the, yep, then yep. he's clearly not checking the polls to see what's appropriate. So therefore, he must be being honest. Except I mean, the polls in the strip club, maybe. But yeah, you know, you're right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, 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 no, you're right. So you're saying that's something that appealed to perhaps a, a, a larger swath of black men, too. Yeah, black men in particular. That, uh, the fact that he looked like, you know, other people were, you know, coming with uh, judgment and so on. And here Donald Trump is, you know, as flawed a, a character as might be imagined. A guy who tells the truth, no matter how politically incorrect, no matter how how untrue it is, <laughs> how made up it is, how false it yes. is, don't let that get in the way of your good story there. So, right. and then I think a couple more things, maybe the HBCU support that he gave historically black colleges and universities, and see them black people were like, look, he's doing more for us than the other presidents uh, when it comes to. You know, black colleges and universities, we don't want to turn Are they right? back on that. Um, Were they right? I mean, degree. criminal justice reform has been talked about criminal by Democrats for a long reform. time. Obama and, got I mean, on that late. Uh, Obama. There were some tangible things that There's perhaps no black question. voters. And I guess, I mean, you have to weigh it. I, I know that a lot of people say the rhetoric is just untenable. I can't listen to this man say such hateful things. Right. I can't let, I can't watch as he completely ignores uh, unarmed black men getting shot right. um, by police officers or killed. I can't handle that. Right. But if you look at the tangible results, criminal justice reform, uh, some of the support he gave to uh, HBCUs, some of the opportunity zones that he did with Tim Scott, are there, I mean, would it be unfair to credit him with anything? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, um, the criminal justice reform, the first, you know, Step Act. Um, he met with you know Congressional Black Caucus sixty days into his administration. I think it took Obama two and a half years. Uh, the HBCU stuff. So look, there are there are means by which uh, Trump procured legitimately some more black interests or attracted more black support. And if there weren't such severe pockets of bigotry and intolerance and outright anti blackness. In some of these uh, outposts, I suspect a lot more black people would be voting Republican and would join that party because there's maybe an inherent conservatism among many black people. The, you know, Ten Commandment religion kind of black folk, even if they tend to be more liberal on their politics. So if there was a way for the Republicans to pull off that miracle, I think there would have a lot more black people. Who are supporting them. So yeah, it's not, I think giving Donald Trump credit is not problematic. The problem is, however, is that he undercut those good values, those good virtues, those good, you know, advances with so much other stuff 
that is uh, Joe Biden would say malarkey, <laughs> right. you know, that you, un- well, he got in his own way. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't protect himself from his own mouth. I mean, I mean from, his own mouth, ways, from his own beliefs, from his own sentiments. Yeah. And look, he's talking about criminal justice reform. He's trying to kill five more black people before he leaves office. So there are contradictions, right? Um, uh, with, with a Donald Trump, but certainly I think that again, uh, absent the kind of vitriol that is often directed toward black individuals. Think about black women, his problem with black women, especially black women reporters and the kind of snarky, dismissive uh, beliefs that he has about them, the, the horrible things he says. Now, he says a lot of horrible things about a lot of people. The, I think what Donald Trump has done here is that he has begun, or at least early on, uh, began to treat America as if it were, quote, historically black. The way black people were historically mistreated is how Donald Trump treated so many others outside of black communities. And so I think a lot of white folk were like, wait a minute. I mean, it's one thing for you to do this to black people and how horrible that is and the like, but now you've mixed up your cast of characters, so to speak. And he's blackened uh, so many other people that he calls nasty or vicious or the kind of hurtful ways he speaks to them. Uh, so you can say on the, in the one hand, in general, he will do this and that's true, but he's got some, you know, a special venom reserved uh, for black women and others. So, you know, it's a both and not an either or kind of conversation. So as we're wrapping up the year um, and taking a look back at 2020 and all of mm-hmm. the hot mess dumpster fire that it has been in so many ways, um, I was, I was kind of struck earlier this week or maybe at the end of last week when time magazine put out its uh, person of the year um, issue and they had their their four nominees, or I guess the four finalists. Uh, Joe Biden was one. Uh, frontline workers were one, along with Anthony Fauci. Donald Trump was one. Mm-hmm. And the fourth one shouldn't have surprised me, um, mm-hmm. uh, but it did, and I'll explain why. After uh, In June, after George Floyd's murder um, and the ensuing movement, that came from that and, and it lasted through the summer. We had uh, an episode where I said we had been having people on and letting them argue with each other. And I said, listen, I can't do arguing this week. I'm, right. I'm, we need some real thoughtful discussion. We had on Michael Steele, Torre was on as well. And, and I asked him to tell me, is this going to be different? Can it please be different this time? Can, can this, this situation with George Floyd please be a situation where we actually get some things done and it doesn't become just another example of people like in Ferguson, Missouri, or uh, in, in Baltimore, where we see protests and we see a movement and then we forget about it in a few months or a few weeks. And, and almost all of them said that they felt that this time in 2020, especially with George Floyd and obviously Breonna, Breonna Taylor, and there were s- several other instances this year where it really caught the, the national attention. Mm-hmm. But when they announced the four finalists for Time Magazine's People of the Year and justice warriors, racial justice um, movement participants were one of the four finalists, I have to be honest. I said to myself, oh, right, that was this year. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been a long year. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. It, there's it, it feels like it's been four years at once. Yeah. But I remember sitting there and and watching that announcement and thinking, oh wow, that's right. That was this year too. Yeah. It's been Do you think that bad, we man. took advantage? Do you think that people took advantage of the the what is it, the political capital really around that? and actually made some progress this time? Or do you personally think that it was another opportunity? There, there were opportunities that were still missed um, in making changes that, that were necessary. Yeah, it's a great way to frame it. And I think both, actually, not to waffle out, and I'll speak to both of them. Uh, clearly, we missed some opportunities to be able to address you know, systemic racism, because you're right. I mean, you're you're very honest and very Right. And and I'm sure a lot of other people uh, feel the same way. It's like, yo, that was, yeah, that was, that was this year. It all came out of so heavy. The global pandemic. We forgot, by the way, that, that Australia caught on fire in January and February. And that was right. the story. Austra- I mean, 2020 has been a bitch, yeah, <laughs> but, no but, but this it. summer did feel like Finally, yep. we had the attention of people who, for years, I think, had sort of poo-pooed the problem. Yeah. Um. Even people like Lindsey Graham, who said, "You know, I saw that video of George Floyd. That was clearly horrible." But he said that he spoke to his black friends who told him, "You know, I get afraid when I see a police officer," and he recognized that's not how he felt. Right. And it felt to me like, okay, wait a second, there is attention here, and people are actually listening for perhaps the first time in years, but did anything come of it that was concrete? Yeah, I think, look, you know, and combining that with your previous assessment, in, in, in one sense, there was tremendous outrage and outpouring of hurt and pain and simpatico with the trauma that Black people have to endure. And a lot of Lindsey Graham's we're hearing from their black friends saying, yeah, you have no idea about how afraid we are, about how much terror we experience when the cops stop us. I think all that was legitimate. That was real. That forced a reckoning uh, in a way. And it forced white people and white bodies into the streets. You know, white folk no longer had the excuses that were readily available to them. Oh, he must have, he must have, you know, shot at the guy and ran. No, he's lying prostrate on the ground. He must have been belligerent and pugnacious. No, he's actually calling the officer, sir, while he's being killed and and, mm. and asphyxiated beneath the knee of Derek Chauvin. Uh, he must have pulled a gun and gotten that. No, we right there, nothing. So I think many white people said, wait a minute, nothing that usually gets said about these kinds of cases is true here leading us to believe how true is it in other instances. And even despite the fact it was not true there, the officers predictably uh, talked about being afraid for their lives and the like, as cops are wont to do, until it was revealed that there was video recording of the right. incident. But what did you hope would come what did you hope would come from that? Well I, I mean well I think the look the very fact that white brothers and sisters opened their minds and heard for the first time what black people had been saying is important. Now, there's some people who are upset, like, you got you got to wake him by George Floyd. 
I mean, slavery didn't do it for you. Jim Crow didn't do it for you. White water fountains, black water, you know, all that other stuff that happened. Emmett Till, uh, you know, didn't do it. Ahmaud Arbery, even the same year. No. All right. But I can't judge what wakes somebody up. It woke them up. I think for the reasons I said. Well, those things happened arguably before a lot of people's lifetimes. I mean, I'm, I'm, I grew, I have people in my family who grew up in segregated of course. Uh, schooling, but. I did not, of and course. so I don't have the Emmett Tills or the or the Greensboro lunch counter sit in in my in my purview. It's not that that's not something that's happened in my lifetime. And certainly, seeing um, what happened in Ferguson, or seeing what happened with Freddie Gray in Baltimore, or seeing what happened with George Floyd for the first time, certainly can make a difference. It but, makes a huge difference. But here's the thing, too: you can say, "Well, look, this is literally a, a, a sequel." Because the first run was Eric Garner six years ago in our lifetime Mm -hmm. recently, where a black man said, please, I am I cannot breathe. Taken down for no good reason. Um, Later found out, well, he sold Lucy's on a, you know, on the street. Well, okay, is that a reason to kill somebody? And he wasn't even doing it the day he was taken down. Walter Scott in South Carolina a few years ago shot in the back on film. Uh, with the cop then throwing the gun oh, down. Oh, yeah, I remember table, that one. Right? So, yeah. So, again, even with them being in recent memory, there's no indication of which one will strike you in a certain way. I think the fact that we were all home, the pandemic had us being introspective, it had us thinking about our, our screens because we were stuck to them, and across those screens flashed George Floyd. I think that- But we talked about it a lot, Michael, and nothing, I mean- well, in in yeah. the wake of that, one of the things that frustrated Talking me the important. most personally right. mm-hmm. was that that we we know that one of the reasons that they didn't have information was that Derek, well, I don't want to say his name, but the police officer who killed George Floyd, um, was his union protected him from being questioned until after he had gotten the statements of everyone else there. Like there were union protections in place for him that are in place for police officers everywhere mm-hmm. that kept him from being questioned. They wouldn't have those. I wouldn't have those protections. You wouldn't have those protections. George Floyd certainly wouldn't have those protections. But there are certain union rules that allow those things. On top of that, district attorneys, as we have seen time and time and time and time and time again, are less likely to prosecute police officers who they have to work with. And it seems like those were just two areas right there, whether it be the, the contracts and the protections that police unions provide for police officers who have done wrong or the the system that's in place that protects them um, when they have done wrong. And and I think both of us agree there are lots of really great cops who sacrifice their time and their energy um, to, to protect their community. But there are also far more, um, far, far more than we need people who are not there simply to do good and protect their community. And they're protected. And I kept thinking throughout the summer, when is someone going to address that? When is someone going to actually address something tangible? And Michael, I saw hundreds and hundreds of Instagram posts of a plain black screen. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why are we putting energy on these superficial social media ready movements, but not actually doing the real work? And I'm curious as to whether or not you think that we missed opportunities to really make change because we were more interested in superficial Band-Aid things. Yeah, I think it, it can be better stated, more eloquently articulated. There is the case that 
the posting of a black square on Instagram, social media postings, identifying with Black Lives Matter. Uh, those things are symbolic, but they do make a difference. The symbols are important. Otherwise, we wouldn't be pulling down Confederate flags or statues. Those are symbolic articulations of Confederate identity, of Southern resentment uh, uh, against uh, a Northern onslaught and assault and the refusal to acknowledge the hurt and pain and trauma that Southern people endured. So symbols make a difference. And yeah, uh, I would say that those things are important, but it's also important to talk about transitioning from the symbolic to the substantive and right. When are we going to do that? That's what I want to know. When's it coming? Well, because wouldn't you rather believe that you were safe when you got stopped by a police officer than care what, and then care um, what, what you the name wait. of the middle school is. But that ain't happening. You know what? Here's the thing. They'll change the name of the middle school. They might pull down the statue, but it's going to be a long time coming. No no uh, pun intended there. Um, well, right. A long time coming before we get to the substantive. And yet they are, they are related to one another. The reason that there are flags and the reason that there are statues are because there are statutes of law, that there are real uh, existing fundamental structures of society, legal practices that are unequal toward some people and advantaged toward others. So yeah, the the substantive stuff we want to see change. You're right. I'd rather for cops when they see me, they see me as a human being. But I don't think that the failure to, okay, we'll not pull down the statues. We won't deal with the substantive. Let's deal with the, uh, the symbolic. Let's deal with the substantive. The substantive, substantive ain't happening either. Because if people find it difficult to concede the legitimacy of the symbolic, how much more willing are they to resist substantive change that will call upon more than an assent toward you know, a darn flag or a, a, a statue of Robert E. Lee. If they can't even get rid of the statue or the flag, what are they going to do about the substantive things that are necessary? Now, let me answer your question. Is what I prefer it? Heck yeah. Uh, is it coming? This is how I see it. Some white people fell in love with black people for the first time after the George Floyd event, right? No judgment. I'm talking about a description. Uh, many who had not been paying attention or who hadn't been invested said, I got to get more invested. So there was a love relationship. And at the beginning of any relationship, there is passion, the igniting of a flame that is being carried, a torch of affection. And then you settle down into the normal, unsexy, everyday stuff. So you move from sending flowers and candy for Valentine's Day to say, did you pull the seat up on the toilet? Did you leave the toilet paper out the wrong way? Uh, what about your toothbrush? The unsexy, normal stuff of marriage uh, is the thing that we're talking about here. And I happen to believe that if we get to the unsexy stuff where white brothers and sisters go home and say, during Hanukkah, Christmas, or New Year's, as I talk to my family, what, what words do I have to say to them when I hear the racist joke? or the canard pulled out, or the trope, or the stereotype. These black people don't want to work. Yeah, yeah they do, Grandma. Uh, no, they're just lazy. No, they're not, grandson. Well, so, that's a bridge too far. I mean, you're <laughs> right. But so, no, I mean, that's ridiculous. And and But is there not a gray area? I mean, there are there, are there different levels? Why is it ridiculous levels? to think that some white person, upon hearing their family member, uh, just ridiculously insult and undermine logic and reason and say, look, I'm not saying nastily now, say, no, I know black folk, that ain't really how they act. 
or no, how many black folk do you know that actually do that? And I just don't think that's true. I'm saying to take the risk of a personal interaction, well, no, not well, a revolution. Trust me, as someone who's taken the risk for 40 years, yeah. the response tends to be, oh, no, there's some good ones now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's some good, which is just as bad as yep, saying, yep, I mean, yep, it's, yep, yep. it's not going to be as simple as, and I, and I say this as someone who's, who's been kicked out of my own mm-hmm. family Christmas parties for fighting with that uncle right, before, right. as young as 13 years old right. <laughs> and fighting with him. Gotcha. But, but, but that's what it's not as Otherwise, simple as just, changed. Look, Clay. You, well, well, that was when I was 13. That was 30 years ago, and it still hadn't changed. Well, then but you're, you're it, giving us an answer because if people can't do it there, <laughs> look, I, and, and I don't care. Look, I, I, not only that, right? That was a you know that 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 notion of going home and Thanksgiving and everything. I always tell people get your get your food first before you challenge uh, anybody in the family. Uh, make sure <laughs> yeah, because you you're gonna well need a fit. full. You're gonna need all your energy right, for my right. family. <laughs> but you know what? I'd rather. You know, instead of posting black squares to have systemic change within corporate America, you damn right. Would I prefer um, that there be disparities erased in schools or in law enforcement where police people can't treat black people the same way they treat white people? I don't know if you saw this film the other day, a recording where a white guy is arguing with the police after they stop him. They withdraw their guns from their holsters. Oh, yes, I saw that. It was infuriating. I mean, come on. Yes. I mean, can we get that? I mean, my point is, right, but but, that but, but, they, but then we pat school boards or legislatures on the back when they make a decision to to create, to take down a Confederate statue or to put up a right. statue of Harriet Tubman and we right. pat them on the back. But I th- I'd make, personally, that makes there. me mad I'm, because I say, why did you take the time to do that, to spend that money on that, but you won't take the time to actually tell me to fix the problem of black boys being put in special ed at a rate five times higher than white boys? That's like just Get your heads out of your asses. You don't deserve a round of applause for putting up, for changing the name of such and such a school when you won't take the time to address the real things that affect people's lives. And okay, I'm getting on a soapbox here. I'm with you, but I'm I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm with you on that. But the question is, how do we make that transition from the strongly substantive, which um, symbolic, which we need white folk joining the streets. That's more than symbolic going into the streets, protesting with black people. And guess what? After Jacob Blake's shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, by those t- by that cop, um, the Black Lives Matter protests were held there. And as you know, clashes between white supremacists and Proud Boys and the BLM, BLM uh, activists. But the two people who were killed were white, white men by a young white vigilante and terrorist. So white people putting their bodies on the line, making sure that they are you know, representing ideas that are not just abstract, but real is something to be said. So that does give me hope. I'm not suggesting I want white folk to go out and be killed. I don't want anybody to be killed, but I'm saying the willingness to sacrifice life and limb to put their bodies right alongside black and brown and people to make an argument about justice is indeed a sense of progress that needs to be. You don't think you already had those two guys? You don't think that the movement for social justice already had those two white men the who, numbers were, who were really Ma- Maybe, but here's the point. The numbers of Isn't it the Rittenhouse swole. that you need to worry about getting? I mean, I, isn't that aren't aren't those the Proud Boys that aren't the Proud Boys the ones who they may never be to gotten get to put their guns down? They may never be gotten. The Proud Boys may never be gotten to, but the the people, the white people with white pride 
who understand the necessity of addressing their issues and their socioeconomic desperation that has been, they think, ignored. But we might have a better chance with people at that level who say, all right, I see white death rising. It's spiking. Uh, you know, we're talking about these issues, but there are a lot of troubles and traumas within. Those people might be more easily reached than somebody who is a sworn bigot, who is a life, you know, who resists the very notion of the humanity or decency of the other. That that that's do you, true. Do you? Does it worry you that that electorally, at least, Republicans, white people tend to be getting more conservative? Mm -hmm. Um, and that Democrats tend to be losing white voters at a faster rate now than they have in the past. You know, of course, I mean, you, you want to stop the bleeding, but here's the problem. And this is nailing it straightforwardly. Um, look at how, for instance, we were told by so many people hey, don't be hard on those Trump voters. They just lost. Reach out to them and so on. And I'm down with that. I'm, I mean, I know a lot of people were pissed. And I said, okay, I'm cool with that. I didn't hear a similar thing. You know, these black people lost four years ago. They they think they've uh, uh, elected for a president a bigot who will make their lives living hell. Why don't we reach out to them? to try? No such thing. It's never a, a, a kind of equivalency. And the reason. Oh, you're absolutely right about that, but you can't change that. Uh, well, you, you say you can't change that. Then you're saying then talking about. I mean, I'm saying I'm saying we can't I can't change the fact that Trump supporters aren't interested in reaching out to me. Right. No, I understand right? that. But I'm saying, though, but the demand that the opposite is true is missing the degree to which there is a penetrating form of deference to white identity and culture and privilege that is often un unspoken. That the very demand that it goes in one direction, but not the other, that we ask, right? I get your point about you can't help that. You can't change it. That's true. But the problem is it's never asked in reverse. And the reason it's never asked in reverse, it's never expected because it will never be done. And thus we're, we're beginning at a place, the presumptive place, the, the a priori, the given when we walk into the room is that there will be a certain kind of let's recruit the, the white person who's been lost since the Southern strategy of Richard Nixon uh, and Ronald Reagan amplified it in even more deleterious fashion. Those white working class people who used to be centrist Democrats who are now Republicans because they were lost because you were dealing with affirmative action. This is what James Baldwin meant. You, you, you know, if the price of admission is the denial of your body or identity, it's hard to talk about forging connection with people who don't believe essentially in your utter humanity or equality. I don't know how you get around that. Well, no, I, I, I don't disagree with that statement, but it makes me wonder at some point, do Democrats stand on, I mean, standing on principle or staying on principle is important, but if, if progressives aren't in power, if they don't have the seats, if they don't win the elections, then nothing can change anyway. Right. No doubt if they if they don't if they don't win it, but look 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 at what happened. What do we see revealed? Um white the majority of white folk did not vote, as you know, for, for uh, Joe Biden, they voted for Donald Trump. Right. Right. So it took right, you know, African Americans, a black, Latinx people, and so on. So that's where the coalition is. White folk. Then why is it Mississippi folk. blue? Uh, say it again. Then why is it Mississippi blue? Thirty-eight percent of Mississippi is black. Oh, that ain't in, in, in order to get, I mean, in order to get uh, a 
a Democrat elected there, one would assume, well, you really only need 12% of, of the white vote to vote Democrat um, if, if black and brown voters stay in coalition. I mean, Mississippi is the, has the highest percentage of black, voters in, of black voters, black citizens in the country, but it's one of the deepest red. I mean, that, that coalition isn't coming out in Mississippi and Alabama. It ain't. It ain't. So, you know, and, and it is a conundrum, right? Because on the one hand, you go like, man, given what you just said, but it's more than the percentages, right? Because you got, you know, in a deeply conservative state, a deeply red state like Mississippi with a history of violence uh, against black ambition, uh, a, a spurning of black curiosity, um, you know, it's deeply rooted in that culture. So you would you you would think that uh, only a smaller percentage of white voters could join together uh, with some of these folk, and right. it would change. Now it's changing in spots, right in Mississippi, to right. be certain. Uh, and that and it certainly changed. changed the demographics and changed it in in Georgia this past election. No cycle. doubt about it. So I don't think I would January give up on 6th that. too. But right, 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 right. So, but but the thing is, is how do you convince white people? Because black and brown people seem to be getting the message. Indigenous people, they, they seem to be getting the message that you got to vote in a way that represents the humanity of all people and all citizens. How can we get white folk to hear that message? How can we get white folk to say, you know, stop when, when you're voting what you think is for your interests? I mean, and, and Donald Trump, that was a ruse, right? That This guy is a billionaire who's not concerned about the average white person. Stop. He's not concerned about the person whose back is against the wall. He put in a bunch of billionaires and multimillionaires in his cabinet. He doesn't pay, you know, strict attention to their needs, but he can, he can gin up and ratchet up the racial resentment. Think about W.E.B. Du Bois in 1935. He said that how are white people paid who are working class and poor? They're paid in the wages of psychological whiteness, the psychological wages of whiteness. At least you ain't a black person. At least you made that person. So the politics of resentment are deployed by the overlords and bosses who are white, who are exploiting those white people at the bottom. They have less in common with them than black and brown people would have with them. And yet they can't cross that racial barrier to embrace the similarity and the, the kind of uh, simpatico or at least democratic small d, democratic energy that they share together, the concerns they have in common they have more in common than they do with white folk who got a bunch of money who don't give a darn about where they are. That's the well, problem. You talked about, you talked about the, and I didn't get the name of the rabbi, but you said that you mentioned Abraham the rabbi Joshua who said, yeah. Ab- okay, who, who said not all are guilty, but all are responsible. Right. What, what responsibility do Democrats, do progressives, do liberals, do those who long for racial justice just mm. justice for all minorities. What responsibility do we have in this mm. in this movement? Mm-hmm. No, it's a great question. I think first of all, to make sure of what you were talking about earlier gets put on the agenda. Don't just talk it, walk it. Don't just say it. You know, be it. Um, look at the systemic stuff that we need. Everything that every word that every phrase that ends in system needs to be examined. Criminal justice system public education system, public health system, criminal justice system. Those are the places where we need to concentrate to figure out, again, like you said, not the sexy symbolic stuff, but the on the ground, everyday, normal rituals, routines, rules, uh, laws, 
that 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 pass that make a difference. For instance, you know, we've got to be able to, I think, in a very sophisticated fashion, challenge some of these stand your ground laws. The reason a lot of white people get away with killing a lot of black people, especially in some of these southern states, but not exclusively, is because of that particular, you know, set of laws that stand in so many, so many local municipalities where white folk have taken guns to kill black people. Secondly, what do we do about policing? We know there's a big debate about whether you defund or if you use that term, or is that turning people off? As if you were to say, uh, you know, more people would support it if they heard a different term. Well, maybe not, and but maybe so. And maybe if we redescribed it, maybe if we talked about reimagining policing. But I'll tell you this though, Clay, it is for me a fundamental issue about which I am deathly afraid that my son, my two sons or my daughter will be caught on the wrong day by a cop mm-hmm. who is just acting out of his gourd and will hurt or harm them, traumatize them, tase them, shoot them, perhaps even hurt and harm them fatally. And that issue has to be on the dockets. And I think progressive well, I'm with liberal you. white folk right, got to push the local I don't, departments. And, and Right, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I have to assume that you would be, again, this is me, I'm going to get myself in trouble for putting words in your mouth, so I'm not putting mm-hmm. words in my mouth. But I have to assume if you love your children as much as I know I love mine and I know you love yours, you would be perfectly fine with them going to a school named after Jefferson Davis if you could be 100% sure and confident that they could be safe in those situations. Of course. I mean, uh, right. you know, but th- look at that. But that's Sophie's choice. In the It's, it's like Sophie's choice but, in but, the ghetto, but right? Let's <laughs> fix. But to me, that's let's. I want to fix the problems, the, the things that are keeping your children from being able to feel as safe around cops as mine are. Well, is that, well um, ex- I'm with you 100% on that. But here's the point. Uh, if we have to choose between the two, of course, but also the, the fact is that that cop who stops my child, me, and can do harm is judge and jury of life. And it's fed by statues that stand and flags that fly because they think the wind is behind their back and beneath their wings. It's not disassociated and it's not unrelated. It's not that, oh, damn, well, you know, let the Jefferson Davis uh, name stand. Let the school uh, remain well, in his name. Uh, that was an exaggerated out. example. I think he's. Of I don't course, you know what I'm there's saying. Anything needs to be named after him, but right. Well, but you get my point. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Whatever, Robert Lee Jefferson Davis, whoever. My point is that that the culture of tolerance and excusing of the facile deference to social trauma of minorities. That is the easy acceptance of intolerance for some as the basis of doing, you know, of being a good citizen for others, right? As long as I'm good, as long as, and we started with this, as long as, you know, the economy is great and my schools are are all right, I don't mind Donald Trump hating you and being a bigot and a racist. And, you know, so we got to ask, how do white people fix white people? And that's a difficult question to ask, right? If you read, I don't know, say if you read um, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, a lot of white people get pissed. They don't even want to hear that. 
Like, why? Why would you do this? Why are you Why are you betraying us this way? Why are you even asking us to take a hard look at who we are and what we do and the practices we reproduce and the pathologies we seem to nurture in our breasts? Well, you know, if, if you're not willing to take a hard, long, strong look at that, it's going to be difficult to get to some of the more substantive issues because I'm with you. I want the killing to stop. I want the murdering to stop. I want the harm of people to stop. I want, but but I also see that, look, Black people not being able to buy homes uh, and gain entree into the middle class, Black people still being redlined, whether they call it that or not, Black people still being shunted toward or directed toward, steered, as they used to call it, in, um, in um, you know, real estate. Uh, the, 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 the yeah, these things could of, be tangibly, these are tangible things that could be fixed or outlawed or changed in some way, right? Yeah, it would be. I mean, there's legislation that could be passed. That's what I'm saying. I'm giving you some practical stuff that people can do, not the kind of merely symbolic and strategic that sound good, but that don't yield a net result that enables Black people to live more safely in a culture that they call home. Uh, we ask questions from our listening. That was such a good line at the end. I just let, wanted to let it sit for a second. <laughs> um, we ask our, our listeners to send in questions every week, and they've known that you were coming on. So um, they sent in a few specifically for you. If you're listening and you want to send in questions to our, our guests in the future, you can do so on Twitter or Instagram at Politicon, or you can email them to podcasts at Politicon.com. Um, Leah from Chicago, Illinois, asks, in 2021, I love this question. In 2021, do we need more Martin or more Malcolm? You know, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, okay. um, Martin Luther King Jr. was far more revolutionary and radical than people realize. I mean, obviously, a Malcolm X being present puts pressure on people to more readily accept a Martin Luther King Jr. And Mar uh, Malcolm X knew that when he went to visit um, Selma, Alabama, and King was in jail, he met with Mrs. King and he told her, please tell your husband that I do what I do. So I force them to listen to him and to do what he does. Mm. And so it was a strategic, you know, you have to have Starsky and Hutch, good cop, bad cop. That's that interesting. Kind of thing. I love that. But on the I other didn't hand, hear that. he said that <laughs> he did. He did. It was uh, extremely, uh, you know, it's extremely conscious. Uh, kind of thing that he did, but but here's do the you thing. think that people today? People okay, yeah, finish your thing. No, no, I'm just saying. Martin Luther King Jr. was far more uh, revolutionary and radical than people thought. He was willing to look at systems and change identities. He said, "Look, uh, the Civil Rights Bill didn't cost you anything. Voting Rights Act didn't cost America anything." He said, "But what we're talking about now, economic justice, uh, eradicating the disparity of wealth, and talking about how the have-gots have to deal with the have-nots." He said, that's going to cost us something, and that will create tremendous resistance in America. So we need a, we need a Martin Luther King Jr. who's enlightened, an enlightened king, a revolutionary king for the last three years of his life. We definitely need that guy. Well, it's interesting that you, I mean, I've, I, I've all, I, I love that you told me, you educated me on that story about what Malcolm X said. Um, but I, I've always sort of believed that someone is, it, it's necessary for someone to stir the turd. <laughs> so that other people smell it, right? right, right, right. No doubt. <laughs> but but we also still need people who are, you know, working to. <laughs> that's a horrible analogy since I don't know what the other side is. But <laughs> someone's got to be able. You, you need both sides of that sort of movement. You need someone who's who's 
continuing to keep things in the public eye, continuing to make sure that folks are paying attention to things, and then someone who's trying to not n- not normalize um, the situation, but but trying to help be more of a, a ambassador to those who disagree with them. That's right. And I love the fact that Malcolm X seemed, according to that story you told me, to understand that he's his role was important in tandem with what Dr. King's. Oh yeah, was. he was put quite do clear you, on that at the end of his do life. Do you think that? Do you think that progressives today feel the same way about their their role um, as Malcolm X must have? Do you think that those who are fighting for what a lot of people would consider more progressive, more democratically socialist things like Bernie Sanders and mm-hmm. AOC, do you think that they see their role in a similar way to what Malcolm X saw his as to, to, to say these things, to keep them in the forefront so that other people will listen to the Sherrod Browns of the world or the, the, I can't, you know, the Jim Clyburn's of the right, world right. who are, who are trying to work with the other side a little bit more. Or do you think that they're really just pushing for their agenda without, are, are they working in tandem well enough now? Yeah, I think no, that's a great point. <clears throat> I think that for the most part, you know, if you're talking about an AOC or Bernie Sanders, no, they're they they they're not trying to get, except when it comes to elections, right? When it's except when it came to electing Joe Biden over Donald Trump, then yes, right. um, they wanted to make certain that a, a figure with the potential to be pushed, uh, to be a bargain with, would be in the office as opposed to a person they believe to be a bigot and a racist. Now, having said that. They think that the centrists are missing a whole bunch of stuff when it comes to leveraging uh, the authority they have as political figures in this culture to get to some more progressive ideas that they're blocking. So, no, I think uh, AOC and Bernie believe, you know, if we could apply these ideas across the board, they would be far more likely to be accepted than one thinks and that these ideas are the uh, ideas of America. I think what Bernie and AOC believe is a lot more people than you think believe these ideas. And if you redescribe them or call them a certain thing and talk about these ideas in ways that are accessible to the masses, you'd have a lot more support for these ideas than somebody going, oh, you're a democratic socialist. Oh, you're trying to really uh, deny the legitimacy of capitalism and the like. I think that's their argument. Their argument is a lot more people believe what we believe if you would say it to them in the right way. Blake from Memphis, you're soon to be uh, home state. Mm-hmm. Um, he asks, should we forgive the other side for they know not what they do? Well, yeah, for, you know, I'm a Baptist preacher for 41 years, so I definitely believe in forgiveness and I definitely believe in understanding. I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I write about it in my, uh, book, uh, my latest book, long time coming. Uh, and part of the reckoning with race, that's the subtitle is to, to not be seduced by the belief that cancel culture is real justice is not having said that. I think, look, um, we, we, you know, when you look at black people on mass in total, we're the kind of people you go up in the church and kill nine of us. And before the bodies are cold, we're, we're offering forgiveness. And the question is to what degree can we also make an argument in defense of accountability and of genuine transformation even as we practice the politics of not personal destruction, but personal engagement with the other, a politics of love. 
as I've often said, justice is what love sounds like when it speaks in public. So the translation of mercy and forgiveness in public spaces is critical, but also finding ways to create a, a society that is far more pervaded by love than vengeance is a goal as well. The book is a long time coming, uh, reckoning with race in America. Um, you are prolific is an understatement. You've I, what book? What number book is this for you? I now? think this is twenty three. I think that's true. Yeah, it's been. <laughs> I, I couldn't count myself because I figured I'd miss one. Um, but it's it's not very long. If you're listening and and you want a um, uh, an easy read, but incredibly insightful, and um, it's a little it's a little tough. I mean, you're you don't pull any pull any punches in this book. I mean, you're, you're very direct. Um, and, but it, but it talked, it's, did you write it? You wrote it this year specifically? Oh, how, yeah. How yeah. Yeah. You started in after, when? uh, George Floyd, man, uh, 15 hours a day for four months. Yeah. So your public, your publisher loves you because <laughs> you crashed it out pretty quickly. I mean, it is very timely and current and though it's been out for um, a few months now, it is. It's still yeah. incredibly timely and current, especially if you're if you're sitting at and listening to this, or you're driving and listening to this, and you're looking for a book to kind of encapsulate the what we've talked about a little bit here in 2020. What has happened to us, aside from the coronavirus, but to our country and the reckoning that the United States has had or attempted to to have um, with some of our. Um, racist systems in our past. It's definitely something um, that I recommend uh, folks picking up. Long time coming. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson's Reckoning with Race in America. That's not the title. It's Mike. <laughs> that's your name. <laughs> then Long Time Coming, Reckoning of Race in America. But, you know, you still are sort of optimistic in it. I mean, you, you, I'm hopeful. you do I'm hopeful. see hope. Yeah, I'm hopeful. So I'm hopeful. I have to ask you the same thing I ask everybody. How the heck are we going to get along? Well, we have to uh, acknowledge our humanity, know that we don't know everything. And if we have that enough uh, humility to recognize we don't know everything, we need each other. I don't care who you are. I don't care. Even if you and I are opposed ideologically uh, and, and, you know, to the nth degree, there's something you may possess, some knowledge, some wisdom, some practical tip that could get me over a particular problem. So at the end of the day, no matter how deep the disagreement, um, I believe, as the Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian said, not in optimism, which is a shallow virtue, but hope, which is a profound virtue. Hope means even when there's no evidence that what you think will occur will occur, you keep on anyway, not delusionally, but with an anticipation that the conditions under which uh, that particular thing you want to see come into existence will emerge, that they will come into being and that you will help bring them into being. Hope is an active process because it demands that you be recruited to achieve the very goal that you have in mind. That's why I remain hopeful because I'm willing to do the work to make sure that my goal comes into existence. Well, I appreciate not only the work you do all the time, but the <laughs> in, in your writing and your speaking and your uh, talking on TV, but, but for having this conversation with us uh, here. Um, and again, if, if you're listening and you want something that is incredibly insightful, it's, it's, I don't want to use the word concise because it's packed full of a whole bunch of info and it's like, 
I can't, I'm amazed that you wrote it in, in a few months. Um, but mm-hmm. if, if you're looking for something that I think encapsulates what I think a lot of us have watched and really sort of longed for and yearned for this year in 2020, when it can, comes to, to the problem of racism in the United States. Um, and yes, a little bit of hope at the end um, to that, Things can get better because sometimes doing this show, I'm not sure it can, but mm. um, but I, I I feel it tonight, and I really encourage folks. Again, um, it's long time coming. Reckoning with race in America, Michael Eric Dyson. Thank you so much, so much for uh, for joining us this week and uh, helping us understand how the heck we can get along. Man, I appreciate you so much. Love you and appreciate you, and you keep up the good work. You're doing a great job out here and a tremendous service to the public. And God bless you, my friend. You too. Thanks so much. Stay well. Have a good holiday. You too, my friend. Thank you so very kindly.